Well, anyways, it's good to have you folks here and uh, welcome to you folks who are signing on via Zoom. Uh, I, I do want us to open with a word of prayer uh, as we always do and just invite the Lord to be here with us. Heavenly Father, as always, we just want to thank you so much that you are good to us, that you are faithful to us, that you are with us with everything that's going on. Father, we thank you that you've shown your love to us in so many different ways. And we thank you, Lord, for your care and for your provision and for your protection. And Father, even the situation that we and so many on the East Coast are facing right now with the smoke, it's just a reminder that, that so many days things go so well and we don't even necessarily think about it. But Lord, that's just your grace and that's your favor to us and to the rest of your creation. But Father, I do want to pray particularly for folks who are being affected by this smoke, who have breathing issues or other health issues. God, we just pray for their safety and for their well-being. Um, we know that you are a compassionate God who looks out for those who are in need. And Lord, I'm sure there are, are so many in this cloud that are already had trouble with breathing issues. I think of someone like uh, Mike Kaknich or, or many others, Lord, that struggle with good air quality. And we just pray, Lord God, for your provision for those in this time. And God, we do pray that you would shift the winds and, and send this smoke out to sea where it would affect far less. Um, we know that you are able to do that. And we pray, Lord God, that you would just give folks grace uh, during this time. And we thank you, Lord, that we look to you. But Lord, this reminds us, even as we will talk about tonight, this reminds us that this creation is fallen. This creation is broken. We continue to see the impact of sin. We continue to see the impact of your just judgment against a rebellious creation as well. And so this reminds us, Lord God, of many of the things that we're looking at in Scripture and that we will look at tonight. Father, and we want to pray as our time together begins, um, as always, Lord, we want to pray that you would be speaking to us, that you would be helping us to rightly understand your word, that you would be helping us, Lord God, to apply it to our lives, to come to know you better, to draw closer to you. So we're grateful to you for this time that we have together tonight, and we pray that in it all, you would be glorified. And we ask all of this, Jesus, in your name alone. Amen. Amen. Well, for those of you who were here uh, last week when we met, we were talking about eternal punishment, eternal punishment. And we were looking specifically at the idea of Gehenna. Remember, Gehenna is the Greek word that in our English Bibles is translated as hell. And what we saw is that the word Gehenna actually comes from uh, the Hebrew of gay Hinnom, which means the valley of Hinnom. And we saw that as this first appears in the Old Testament in the book of Joshua, that it is literally a valley that is south southwest of Jerusalem. And initially it's mentioned because it formed part of the border between the inheritance of Benjamin and the inheritance of Judah. But then what we see is that as Old Testament history unfolds, it becomes a place of incredible sinfulness. It's a place where idols are worshipped. It's a place where Children's child sacrifice occurs. So the Lord says this is going to become a place of judgment. 
and it's going to become a place of slaughter. It's going to become a place where there are going to be numerous dead bodies, so much so that they won't even be able to be buried. So as Old Testament history unfolds, this becomes not just a, a neutral geographical feature. It becomes a place of judgment. It becomes a place of sin and rebellion. It becomes a place of the wrath of God being put on display. So when we get to the New Testament, we hear Jesus talking about Gehenna. And now what he is talking about is no longer the valley outside of Jerusalem. He is talking about the place of eternal punishment. He's talking about the place of eternal punishment. And remember, we said the word Gehenna is used 12 times in the New Testament. So 12 times this word occurs in the New Testament. And 11 of those times, it is Jesus himself who is speaking of it. So remember, we talked last week about the idea that, you know, because Jesus is loving, because Jesus is merciful, he would never talk about hell. He wouldn't be sending people to hell. Well, of course, that's a completely unbiblical idea. Nobody talks about hell more than Jesus himself. And what we said is that the reason, at least in part, the reason why Jesus mentions it so much is to serve as a warning. Because Jesus came to deliver people from hell. Jesus came to save people from hell. When we talk about salvation, we're saved from sin. We're saved from death. We're saved from evil. We're saved from the devil. But we are also saved from hell. So part of the reason why Jesus is talking about it so much is in warning. He wants humanity to understand that if we don't dramatically change the course of our life, this is where we are going to end up. And of course, he goes to the cross and he provides a way for us to escape hell. So we looked at a couple of the passages in which Jesus mentions hell. Um, let's just read again Matthew 10, 28. Matthew 10, 28. And Aaron, were you able to pull up the sheets for the folks on Zoom? I emailed them to you. Um, I'm sorry, I meant to remind you of that earlier. But Matthew 10, 28, just a single verse we'll read here. It says, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So Matthew 10, 28, one of these places where Jesus is speaking of hell. He says, do not fear the one who can only destroy the body, but fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Or, of course, now we know in Gehenna. So as we were ending our time Last week, we were talking about this word that Jesus uses here that NIV translates as destroy. It's the Greek word apolumi. 
because there are some that argue that unbelievers are not punished eternally, that there is an end to this punishment, or that they are destroyed in the sense of they cease to exist. So one of the questions that we are raising is, does scripture in fact teach that punishment is eternal? Or does scripture teach that there is an end? Sometimes this is referred to as annihilation. So for example, Jehovah's Witnesses, who we would regard as a cult, they teach annihilation. They teach that the punishment of the wicked is not eternal, that it is something that is temporary. So we looked a little bit at this word that Jesus uses in Matthew 10, 28, this Greek word, apolumi. And we asked the question, does it ever carry with it the sense of annihilation to completely obliterate, to cause to cease to exist? As it is used in the New Testament, is that ever a meaning that is used for apolumi? And what we find is that it is not. It is not. So a couple of the senses of the word apolemy uh, on the sheet that you have in front of you here is to lose. So in Luke 15, 24, in the parable of the prodigal son, the father declares, my son was dead, he's now alive. My son was lost, now he is found. So sometimes the word apolemy simply means to lose. It can also mean to be spoiled or to ruin. So point number two, to become useless. In Luke 5.37, Jesus is telling the parable of new wine being put into old wineskins. And he says you cannot do that because the new wine will expand and it will destroy the old wineskins. Well, the word that Jesus uses there is the word apolumi to destroy. So again, the idea is not that the wineskins are annihilated. It's not that they cease to exist. It's that they are ruined. They are useless. They are no longer of benefit or value. Another example of a polemy being used that way is in John 6, 27, where Jesus says, do not work for bread that spoils or bread that perishes. So again, that's the word apolumi. And again, it's not the idea that the bread is annihilated. It's the idea that the bread goes bad. It gets either crusty or moldy or inedible. Sometimes the word apolumi means to kill. And so we see that, for example, in Matthew 2.13, where it says that Herod was seeking to kill the baby Jesus or to destroy the baby Jesus. Well, obviously, that was the sense of murder. So if you read Matthew 10, 28 on its own, and Jesus is saying, fear the one who can destroy both body and soul, you may think that what he is speaking of as the destruction of the soul is annihilation. But it really never seems to be a sense of apolumi as it's used other places in scripture to annihilate. 
And what we are going to do next is actually point out some passages of Scripture that clearly indicate that punishment is eternal. Now, again, we mentioned it last week, and I'll, I'll mention it tonight. This isn't a truth that necessarily brings us great joy. This isn't a truth that, you know, makes us happy. This isn't a truth that, you know, eases our burden. You know, there is some truth that is hard truth. Now, the human response to this is to try to soften this or to try to change this or to try to reason with human understanding and say, well, a good God can't do this. A good God wouldn't be this way. And we see throughout the course of the history of the church that there have been offshoots of the church that have wrestled with this and come up with the conclusion, hey, a loving God wouldn't do this. The scripture must mean something else. But again, we talk a lot when we look at the scriptures together that we don't ever want to make God what we want him to be. And we don't ever want to make the Bible say what we want it to say. Because then we're just making a God of our own invention. We're making a, a scripture of our own thoughts and minds. And we see there's a lot of that going around. The church that I grew up in, that was the Bible that they taught. They taught their version of the Bible. And anything that had to do with the anger of God, or the judgment of God, or the punishment of God, even anything that really had to do with sin, they just ignored that, or removed that, or skipped that, because they didn't want to talk about that. They didn't want to believe those parts of Scripture. So again, when we are embracing the Lord, and when we are embracing truth, we don't say that we respond the same way to all of it. The truth of eternal punishment is not a happy truth. It's not a joyful truth, but it is still truth. And that's why we teach it. And that's why we share it with folks, even as Jesus. I mean, Jesus wasn't talking about hell and laughing with a smile on his face and joking around. And yet he talked about it. He talked about it, as we said, more than anyone else on the pages of Scripture. Because out of genuine love for people, he was warning people that because this is real, you should do everything to avoid this. So we always want to be very, very careful that we don't compromise the truth of Scripture. That we don't try to make God what we want him to be. And in this case, we very clearly understand that this is not necessarily a truth that is going to be something that delights us or brings us joy, but it is truth nonetheless. So with that being said, let's just look at a couple of places that seem to indicate that this punishment is not temporary, but it is in fact eternal. So the next passage on the sheet in front of you, and Aaron, were you able to pull that up, folks? Thank you so much, Aaron. So Matthew 18, verses 8 and 9. So just a couple of chapters later. Matthew 18, verses 8 and 9. 
And again, this is Jesus speaking. Similar to a passage that we had read before. He says, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. So Jesus is obviously giving a parallel warning in these two verses. He's talking about a hand and a foot. He's talking about an eye. But in both cases, he's talking about how we must ruthlessly remove sin to avoid the threat of eternal punishment. And the way that he describes it at the end of verse 8 is eternal fire. And the way that he describes it at the end of verse 9 is the fire of hell or the fire of Gehenna. So here is a passage where Jesus is clearly indicating that the punishment of hell is not temporary, but in fact is eternal. There's a lot of other places that reinforce this in scripture. We're not going to read them all. I'll write these down for you. These are some that are not on the sheet in front of you, and you can look these up later. But Mark chapter 9, verse 43, Jesus talks about the fire that is not quenched or the fire that is not extinguished. The book of Jude actually has a couple of references. Jude 7 and Jude 13. Again, not using the word hell, but talking about eternal fire and darkness that lasts forever. Revelation chapter 14, verse 11. All of those who worship the beast, all of those who take the mark of the beast, it says the smoke of their burning does not cease day or night. The smoke of their burning goes up forever. Okay, so it seems to be much more an impulse of human reasoning to say that the scriptures do not teach that punishment is eternal, because it seems from these passages, and there's others beyond that, that in fact, punishment is eternal. And again, it is parallel to the idea of eternal reward. But yeah, Howard, you have a comment or a question? Thank you. Did you say it was Jude 7 13? Jude verse 7 and Jude verse 13. Yeah. Remember, because Jude is one of the books of the Bible that only has one chapter, we don't really say like Jude 1 7 or Jude 1 13. We just say the verse number. But yeah, it looks a little strange, right? <laughs> it looks like Jude has 13 chapters and we're talking about two of them. No, thank you for bringing that up, Howard. I appreciate that. But yeah, anytime that a book of the Bible is just one chapter, so like 2 John, 3 John, Obadiah, Philemon, you usually just refer to the verse without saying chapter one. But no, thank you for bringing that up. So, but let me also just pause here. Are there are any questions about this or any comments about this before we go on to the next section there on the sheet? 
Okay, then I'm going to erase this if we're ready for it to be erased. We've already seen that the word Gehenna is used and is translated as hell. We've seen that it is described as fire or as eternal fire. But there are other ways that the scriptures and other ways that Jesus himself describes this eternal punishment. So one phrase that we may be familiar with is that Jesus, on a few occasions, refers to it as outer darkness and a place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, in these passages, he doesn't specifically use the word Gehenna or hell, but he is clearly talking about this place of eternal punishment. So, in the three passages in Matthew that are listed under outer darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth, these are all places where Jesus describes the place of punishment in just those terms. And we'll just look up one of them because they're all basically almost word for word identical. So let's look at the middle one, say, Matthew 22, verse 13. Jesus here is telling uh, is telling the parable of the banquet. Um, yeah, verse 22, verse 2, the kingdom of heaven is like a long, like a king who prepared a wedding banquet. Those who are invited reject it, so then they bring in all the folks from the highways and the byways. And then there is this interesting turn in the parable where you have to be clothed in the correct garment, the wedding garment. And in verse 13, Jesus says, Then the king told the attendant, Tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness or throw him into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And again, within the parable, this is the one who was attending the banquet, the wedding feast of the king, but didn't have the appropriate attire. Now, we're not going to take the time to unpack that because the emphasis that we're making here is that Jesus is describing this place of eternal punishment as outer darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth. So what is it that we should gather from that? Well, the idea of outer darkness seems to be outside, cast away, cast away from the presence of the Lord, cast away from the good things of God. Possibly it's the idea of isolation as well. I mean, again, you don't want to overread into it because Jesus doesn't give us a lot of, you know, expanded detail into it, but it could be implying that. Certainly the phrase weeping and gnashing of teeth is implying that it's a place of agony, it's a place of torment, it's a place of suffering. You know, the idea of grinding your teeth or gnashing your teeth is something that is done in response to pain or discomfort. And so Jesus obviously is, is painting a very sober and various serious picture of it. Now, again, we mentioned it before, and, you know, we may say, well, if eternal punishment is a place of eternal fire, then how can it also be a place of darkness? 
because our understanding of fire is that fire produces light. And that's where, again, we don't want to press too hard the different images or the different even maybe metaphors that the Lord is using to describe this, because it's hard for us to conceptualize a place with fire that is dark. But we, again, if, if scripture gave us more detail on that, we would press it. The, the idea of the eternal fire, I think, again, has to do with it being a place of, of suffering and agony. The idea of darkness, as we said, is probably having to do with a place of being cast out from the presence of the Lord. Um, maybe, like we say, a sense of isolation. But again, we don't want to say, oh, this is contradictory. And certainly, I think it would be wrong to say that Jesus is describing two different things because the way in which he is using this is exactly parallel to the way in which he is using Gehenna or the word hell. It's just another aspect that scripture gives us to help us understand the intensity of the torment, the intensity of the suffering that is going on there. And again, this should be motivating us. This should, first of all, be motivating us to worship the Lord, to thank him that Jesus has rescued us from this. You know, we should never have a day go by where we are not incredibly grateful that this was the destiny that we deserved, but God has rescued us. You know, sometimes it's difficult for us to worship. You know, sometimes earthly circumstances may be weighing us down. Sometimes, you know, just the heaviness of life, you know, may be getting us discouraged. Well, for us, the doctrine of eternal punishment, one of the things that it should do is really inspire us, you know, to worship the Lord. You know, this, this was where we were going. And Jesus rescued us from this. But a second should be this should be an incredible motivation for us to share Jesus with others. You know, many of us get intimidated or scared of a human response to talking about Jesus. Well, is that fear that we have of someone disliking us or someone laughing at us or someone rejecting us, is that as great as where they will be heading if they don't hear the gospel and have an opportunity to repent? So this is an opportunity for us to get things into a much more biblical perspective. You know, as we're thinking about, you know, it's hard for me to talk to people about Jesus or it's intimidating for me or I don't feel comfortable doing it. You know, one of the, the, the counterbalances to that is the weight of eternal punishment, the weight of what is coming for those who do not accept the Lord. So this should be a motivation for us to share with folks, to give them an opportunity to be rescued from this fate, even as we have been. And again, remember, it's Jesus more than anyone else who is talking about this. It's Jesus more than anyone else who is giving humanity this warning so that they might have an opportunity to escape. Okay? The next heading there on the sheet, we won't read Matthew 8, 12 and Matthew 25, 30 again, because those are just other places where Jesus specifically talks about outer darkness and the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. We already mentioned a couple of places where the scriptures clearly indicate the punishment is eternal. 
a couple of more in Matthew 25, 46, in the parable where Jesus is separating all of humanity, the sheep and the goats. Remember the goats he puts on his left-hand side, the sheep he puts on his right-hand side. Well, the end, the conclusion in Matthew 25, 46, is the goats go into a place of eternal punishment. Again, a different word is used there. And the sheep enjoy eternal life. So again, remember, we are seeing the contrast between eternal punishment and eternal life. And that's exactly the contrast that Jesus uses in Matthew 25, 46. <clears throat> One place outside of the Gospels, and we'll read it just because it's the Apostle Paul rather than the voice of Jesus in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. We actually looked at this passage earlier in our eschatology study in regard to the coming of Jesus Christ. But this, we'll look at it now specifically in terms of reference to this eternal punishment. So 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, Verse 9, it says, They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. And again, the idea there is not destruction in the sense of annihilation, but destruction in the sense of ruin. So they will be eternally ruined. They will be eternally uh, made of of, of, of Again, no value is not a great way of putting it. But again, not the idea of annihilation, but cast out from the presence of the Lord, possibly paralleling this idea of outer darkness and from the majesty of his power. Okay? Then the last two passages that we have here, again, we've made reference to this when talking about the millennium, because... Remember, in the millennium, there is reference to the second death. Well, in these passages, we are given a clear picture of the second death, which is the lake of fire. So Revelation chapter 20, verses 14 and 15, and Revelation chapter 21, verse 8. We'll just read this first passage together. And you can read Revelation 21, 8 on your own. But again, this is occurring at the end of the age. We talked a lot about the millennium that's mentioned in Revelation 20, verses 1 to 6. This is now part of the next passage that comes. And this is what it says. Revelation chapter 20, verses 14 at 15. It says, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So again, John does not use the word Gehenna, but certainly seems to be talking about the same place, the place of eternal judgment. And certainly parallel, this is called a lake of fire, and we've seen before the talk about eternal fire. 
we mentioned as well that it says that death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. And so we are arguing that the New Testament makes a distinction between Hades and hell or Gehenna. Hades is the place of temporary punishment where the wicked dead go awaiting final judgment. Gehenna or hell is the place of eternal punishment, the final place of punishment for the wicked. So it's interesting because at the end of this age and the dawn of the new age that is coming, both death and Hades, the realm of temporary punishment and death, the uh, punishment for sin, are thrown into the lake of fire. Okay? We're going to move on from this as long as there are no comments or questions. But if there are comments or questions, that's fine. But any, anything to bring up in terms of what we've looked at tonight with eternal punishment? Any comments or questions about that? Yes, someone on Zoom? Hi, Dave, it's Ted. Can you hear me? Yes. Oh, hey, um, thanks for uh, amassing such a, a lot of scriptures and metaphors about judgment. One that I, I think we didn't mention, but is also significant, I think, is Jesus talks in Matthew 9, and it's a quotation from the Old Testament, too, about um, where it, about the worm not dying and the fire not being quenched. And I think that, you know, in addition to the flames and the darkness uh, and the gnashing, weeping and gnashing of teeth, the idea of the worm is pretty significant, too. I think it's a symbol of, of, of rot, you know, moral rot, but also of God's judgment. And, uh, you know, like it says, when, when Herod wasn't giving the glory to God, the angel struck him and he was eaten by worms and he died in that order. He was started to be eaten by worms before he even died, apparently, according to what Luke says. But uh, I think it's uh, Mark 9, 44, somewhere around there. But the, the idea of the worm and the fact that he says the worm doesn't die, again, you know, reinforces the point that you're making that, you know, God God isn't going to, the judgment and uh, and punishment are not temporary things. They're eternal. The worm doesn't die, just as the fire isn't quenched. Yeah, no, thank you for bringing that up. I think it is Mark chapter 9, because we made a passing reference to it, the fire is not quenched. But yeah, some some versions of Mark then have this phrase about the worm not dying. And I think you're right, because I think the idea there is that worms eat a decaying body. So the fact that the worm never dies seems to me that there is no end to that condition, that it is a perpetual condition. And it seems to be that Jesus is borrowing from Isaiah 66, 24, which is actually uh, the last verse of Isaiah. Um, we'll look at that uh, more closely in a second, but I just want to double check that to make sure that that is the verse that I have in mind. But the last verse of the book of Isaiah says, and they will go out and look upon the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me. Their worm will not die nor will their fire be quenched, and they will be loathsome to all mankind. So yeah, that is the verse that Jesus is clearly picking up on in Mark chapter 9. But thank you for bringing that up, Ted.
Do we have we have other comments or questions about this? Yeah, please, Ephraim. No, it's something that I was just thinking about the the eternal punishment and the eternal life. Um, when we see a person that go into fire, the the body will be decomposed or destroyed in probably ten minutes or whatever and die, and it's dead. But the eternal life uh, and the eternal punishment it just go on and on for for eternity. And uh, it just I say how that can be possible, but that's what the God expressed that is for all the life when the punishment is when God coming back and and uh, it's just amazing that is not in a, a, a moment. It's just a continuation of that. And the eternal life is the same way at the end. Yeah. Which is an amazing end. I was just thinking in that and it just blew my mind. Yeah. And, but I know that it's, it's for eternity, yeah. But that punishment is it's not, it's not for a moment and a stop. It's just continuation forever and ever. And right. Just, yeah. No, that is definitely, you know, to me, the clear teaching of Scripture even though, like I say, it is it is hard for us to conceptualize. I think, at least for me, it's hard to imagine people being punished and suffering for all eternity. But again, we don't want to change what the Bible says because it's hard for us or because we don't like it or because it's difficult for us. You know, we want to do everything we can to teach what the scriptures teach. And again, what you're referring to, you know, the idea of outer darkness, the idea of the eternal fire, you know, is that is that being metaphorical? Is that being literal? Is it a little bit of both? Again, I, I would not press it too hard just because, you know, how, how we know fire to work in this creation is it consumes things and then it goes out. So there's obviously some sort of parallel there. That's why scripture is using it as an image for the place of eternal punishment. But what you're saying, Ephraim, I think is right, which is, you know, we don't want to push it too far. You know, one example that came to mind is the burning bush. You know, when Moses sees this bush that's on fire, but the bush is not being consumed. Well, that was obviously, you know, beyond anything that normally happens in this creation. It was miraculous. So again, these descriptions that are given to us in Scripture are absolutely accurate. But we maybe don't want to press them too far to be literal or to fully equate with how we understand these things in this life. There is a parallel. I mean, we understand darkness in, under, in this life. We understand fire in this life. But again, you know, what it actually is going to be, God will determine that. But it's enough for us to understand at least these images that the scriptures give us. So, but yes, Sim, you have something? Yeah, um, I don't have the words for it, but, um, you know, as as one lives our, their lives, one usually thinks about what's happening today, tomorrow, to-do list, the goals, the and and in the in the back of your mind or somewhere in there is this hope, but this is just for now, and this will come to an end when either Jesus returns or he calls us home. There's that understanding and and kind of like that um a settledness, okay, I know what's happening. I know I do not spend a lot of time thinking about heaven. Okay, when I'm, you know, wistfully like, oh, wow, it would be so wonderful. Um, when you start thinking deeply about 
eternal punishment like we are right now, even just the fact that we're looking at six verses or eight verses, and that's, it's devastating. You know, it's just, it's too long. Like eternity is too long. Like how could God, so it's easy to understand how people would have that empty hell theory or that, oh, God is too compassionate because it is devastating to think about that eternity that you just keep on and on and on for a life that was led for 20, 40, 60, 80, 100 years. You know, like that's nothing in comparison to eternity. So yeah, it's, it's, I mean, I think it would, you know, where it says, um, teach us to number our days so we have a heart of wisdom. I think thinking about these things gives us a, yeah, it's, it's scary and wonderful when you think of heaven, but may it give us wisdom and, and give us words to speak to a person who would say, but, you know, how could God do this? Right. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I, again, I think the great danger we have living this life is we forget to have an eternal perspective, whether it's us living for the glory of eternity that awaits us or us being aware of the unsaved world and the you know, agony of the eternal punishment that awaits them. And I think you know, one of the things that happens is when we regularly get into scripture, scripture challenges us to think the way it does. And one of the ways that scripture thinks constantly is it constantly has an eternal perspective. I mean, you know, we've had a lot of funerals recently, you know, that that principle that says, look, 80 years, 100 years is like grass that's here today and gone tomorrow. Well, that's not normally the way we think. You know, if we hear that someone lived 100 years, we're like, wow, they had a really long life. Well, that's not really thinking biblically. Because biblically, 100 years is like nothing. I mean, biblically, 100 years is like the grass that's here today and burned up tomorrow. So, you know, what you're saying, sweetie, I think is really very, you know, on point, which is the one of the reasons why we immerse ourselves in the Word of God is so that we're thinking the way the Word of God does. That we're not just living this life getting sucked into the human perspective of this natural world. Because Jesus came into this world and he talked about this stuff all the time. You know, he didn't talk about sports. He didn't talk about human rulers. He didn't talk about those things. He talked about the eternal kingdom. That's all he talked about. You know, that's all he talked about. And that's, you know, where we want to have our perspective and our focus. So I, I appreciate you bringing that up. As we dive into themes in scripture, hopefully what's happening is we are having the Lord teach us how to think of things biblically and not to get, I know I do all the time, get sucked into just a worldly perspective. So, but yeah, we have a comment or question on Zoom. Yes, hi. Um, so, you know, thinking of what uh, you and Ted brought up in terms of Isaiah, I guess it's, is it 65 verses 24, where it talks about the worm not dying? Isaiah 66, 24. It's actually the last verse of Isaiah. Right, right. So, and they will go out and look on the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me. The worms that eat them will not die. The fire that burns them will not be quenched and they will be loathsome to all mankind. Um, I guess a couple of things. I, 
part of what's troubling about that for me is that while I really believe that that people who are with the Lord right now are aware of what's going on on earth, um, it, 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 is, it is troubling to me to think that we could remain aware uh, of such a, a loathsome, <laughs> you know, um, sight or whatever. And I, you know, I don't know if there's anything to be said about that. It's just, you know, it's like, oh, and, and um, I'm also wondering the whole uh, millennial, premillennial, et cetera. Um, I'm wondering if any one of those groups like would say, would look at this verse and say, you see, it, it fits right here. This is how it fits. Uh, or this is what justifies our position. In, in terms of the, in, the Isaiah in verse? This, in, yeah, in terms of this idea of mankind going and looking upon all this, like, what yeah, is... Yeah, the, the, the folks who I think primarily are pre-mills, because we're going to look at Isaiah 66, 22, 23 in a moment, mm -hmm. they would say that is the millennium before eternity. Right. So, yeah, so they, they would argue that that is sort of that, that silver age. Mm -hmm. Something that's better than now and not as good as eternity. So yeah, they would take Isaiah 66, the last couple of verses, Isaiah 65, uh, Isaiah 11, which are all on the next sheet that we're going to look at. And the premillennialists would say that's the millennium. Mm -hmm. That is that silver age, better than today, not as good as the future. Um, so again, that's a possibility, but the other passage that comes to mind that we just mentioned in passing is Revelation 14, 11, where it says the smoke of those burning goes up forever. Well, the idea there is that the evidence of their suffering is going up forever, and that is something that is noticeable. And I don't think... Revelation 14 would be taken as something that's occurring in the millennium. The pre-mills would probably argue that, yes, this is the millennium. This is not eternity. But Revelation 14, 11, which has a similar idea, this evidence of the eternal punishment or the eternal suffering of the wicked, there it's described as their smoke going up forever. That, that seems parallel in that sense. And there, I don't think that they would say that's an indication of punishment in the millennium. Um, but yeah, I mean, I've, I've been looking at this stuff for about three or four weeks. And yeah, I, I would say it's not necessarily easy. I mean, uh, you know, I, I think there's just an impulse, particularly in our culture at times, to just kind of recoil from this stuff. And I know I have that propensity myself. And so I noticed that as I was wrestling with this, part of the problem I had personally is I just try to avoid things that are unpleasant. You know, I try to avoid things that are, you know, not nice. I just, and that, and that's not necessarily a godly impulse. So, you know, Seema, what you're expressing and Camille, what you're expressing, you know, I, I feel like as, as folks who love the Lord, that isn't necessarily an inappropriate response. Because, like I said, I, I don't think that this is a truth that should hit us the way, like the truth of forgiveness, or what we're going to look at in a minute, the truth of 
you know, the new heavens and the new earth. And so different truth hits us different ways. And I, and I just feel like, yeah, this is, this is one of these truths that is, is, is pretty hard, is pretty sobering, um, is not necessarily the easiest just to, you know, wholeheartedly embrace. But again, I think not only does that make a comment on the nature of the truth, but of course, it's always making a comment on us. You know, and as we read the word of God, we always want to let the word of God read us. And I'm not saying that that's an inappropriate response, but when we do struggle maybe with an inappropriate response, one of the things that's happening is that the word of God is reading us. And we always, 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 whether we accepted the Lord this morning or whether we accepted the Lord 50 years ago, we always need the word of God to change us. Until the Lord calls us home, we are still works in progress. And the truth has the power to change us. And I know I, for one, I need to be changed. I need to be changed. I need to be changed daily by the word of God. I need the truth of God that is bigger than me, that is outside of me, speaking into me and changing me in the way that I need to be changed. And I know I'm constantly bombarded with the world. You know, I'm constantly bombarded with the world's perspective. And that constantly is, is, is attempting to mold me and shape me, tell me how to think, how to react, how to respond. That's why I need the word of God. I need the word of God to give me God's perspective so that I'm not being conformed to this world, but being transformed. And I think, you know, one of the things with eternal punishment is it may be hitting at some things in me that needs to change. I mean, that's one of the thoughts that I've had over the last couple of weeks. You know, Lord, there's probably something in me that needs to change in terms of approaching this. Because the word of God, it's, it's living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. And again, you know, as Camille brought up a couple of weeks ago, we always, always, always want to make sure we're doing everything we can to actually say what the word of God is saying. We don't want to, you know, take that, take that lightly. But once we are, are, you know, really immersing ourselves and really saying, okay, this is what the word of God says, then we need to let that truth change us. We need to let that truth shape us because that's part of the purpose uh, and the value of of the Word of God. So, Ephraim's saying something here. We're getting him the mic for those of you who are on Zoom. <laughs> but one of the realities that we see clearly is the mistakes of what people do without Christ. And the Word of the Lord, when we saw it, is is beautiful because avoid us. To be killed ourselves or to hurt somebody else or but it's a reality that, it, that we saw it every single moment in our life when we see people walking in the darkness they hurt so much and sometimes i say myself how that person can go so far in his life and doing that and suffer that way but it's i i saw it that the word of the lord is is the confidence that we have in our life to be able to get into the into the, the the place that God wants us to be, and eternity is is a truth, and a punishment is a truth, 
And I was listening uh, yesterday with my wife, uh, Billy Grant, you know, he passed away. And, uh, but he was talking about infer Inferno. And uh, it was a lot of passage that you were just sharing today. And, uh, but uh, he was speaking so, so well on that topic mm. that it convinced. When I was listening, I said, oh my goodness, amazing. But mm -hmm. because he said, we have to tell the truth, no matter yeah. what the cost. And, uh, but uh, yeah, the, my point is that reality that we saw, that we face in every day. Uh, Amen. Amen. Yeah, you know, Ephraim, when you were talking, one of the things that came to mind, you know, as 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 we're, we're, we're grappling with this idea of eternal punishment and as we're talking about how we need the truth of the word of God to change us, you know, another thing that needs to be corrected in, in some of us is that we minimize the severity of sin. And one thing that eternal punishment reminds us of is that sin, God, God really hates it. And it really is absolutely awful. You know, the, the sobering nature of eternal punishment, because the thing is, this, this is right. This is just. God, God can't do anything that is unrighteous. God can't do anything that is unjust. And so, you know, Ephraim, you brought it up in the first part of your comment, and I'm so glad that you did. You know, I, I feel like sometimes our, our flesh softens sin and softens the severity of sin. But eternal punishment, one of the good fruits that comes from studying this, this doctrine of Scripture is it reminds us, you know, sin really is awful. And if this, if this is what unforgiven sin deserves, then we better not be selling sin short or making it small or making it insignificant. You know, this is, this is one of those things. And, and again, one of the things that happens as, as believers, as we live in grace, we forget just how amazing it is that God has forgiven us. But, you know, if we hold on tenaciously to the biblical doctrine of eternal punishment, then we have to hold on to the truth that sin is absolutely awful. If this is what sin deserves, then sin is awful. It's not small. It's not insignificant. It's not minor. Sin is awful. And if sin is awful, then it reminds us that grace is unbelievably incredible. It's unbelievably incredible. So you see, if we soften this, then we soften the severity of sin. And if we soften the severity of sin, then we minimize the amazingness of grace. And again, this is just one example of where if we try to sort of like you know, soften the edges or make things a little bit more palatable, what we end up doing ultimately is we destroy the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the perfect expression of the gospel of Jesus Christ is what is found in scripture. And so I'm so glad Ephraim brought that up because as he was talking, I think it's definitely something that we need to emphasize. This, this is just. This is right. God is righteous. God is just. This is what sin deserves. God would not be unfair. God would not be unrighteous. God would not be unjust. He can't be. 
He can't, he can't deny his character. He can't be anything less than who he is. So this is just. And if this is just, then we better make sure as believers we understand how terrible sin is. And we better not take sin lightly. And of course, as we do that for ourselves, we stand in amazement that God has forgiven us. That God has forgiven us. So even though Ephraim's helping a gentleman at the door, thank you so much for bringing that up, Ephraim. And, and, and gosh, I'm going to Google and, and find that teaching from Billy Graham because I'm sure Billy Graham is an amazing teacher. And I'm sure his teaching on hell is phenomenal. I'm sure it is phenomenal because he was, I mean, he was a pure gospel preacher and he doesn't, he never softened the truth. So I'm going I'm to Google that and, and look that up. Um, yeah, so thank, thank you for bringing that up. So. But anything else before we move on here? Yes, my wife again, circling back. Yeah, no, I mean, so many thoughts go through your head. And I totally agree with Ephraim. Of course, he's talking about the more sanctified view of, you know, every day we see sin and every day we, we, we are amazed at how, how far a person can go in sin. Um, one way I can justify, I, I, I'm, I'm convinced that once I'm in heaven, because the work of sanctification will be complete, I'll have the mind of Christ perfectly so that what God views as unrighteous, what God sees as good, what God determines as punishment as appropriate, I will totally be in sync with it because that's who I will be. So I will be horrified at sin. Any sin will be horrifying to me uh, at that time. So, but, but sitting here on earth, um, thinking of, well, do I live with this? Do I, you know, yeah, the, the equivalent I can find is if I'm grading a paper and I give someone an F and someone a, a B plus and someone an A minus, I feel very justified in doing what I've done. Um, you know, as long as I'm not doing it with malicious intent, but as I, as I grade people differently in, in a course, I, I, I don't worry about, well, sometimes I, I feel bad, but, but for the most part, I'm just like, they, they got the grade they deserved. And, and I, I can live with that. And so there's a part of that in me that already accepts, well, not everyone's going to make it um, or not everyone made it. I'm talking about specifically my course. Um, so, so that it's not such a hardship for me to figure out, well, you know, what would, what would that sanctified perfect me in heaven what view would I have of eternal punishment? Well, it would be, that's, that's the just thing. That's what should have happened. Right, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. You know, and, and again, you know, another parable that we saw Jesus tell was that, you know, the servant who disobeyed unknowingly was beaten with a few blows and the servant who disobeyed knowingly was beaten with many blows. So there is, you know, these passages don't necessarily emphasize it. As we see, you know, all of sinful humanity thrown into the lake of fire, you know, our mind conceptualizes, you know, an equal measure of punishment. But, but Jesus clearly teaches in Luke <clears throat> chapter 12 that there is a variation in punishment. Not everyone is punished to the same severity, to the same intensity. And so, again, you know, we're, we're looking at a lot of different ways of understanding this. But like I say, if you try to put them all together, I, I, I just I don't think it quite works because it's, it's beyond what we on this side of eternity can fully comprehend. It's just, it's beyond us. And so again, as I always say, because I try to do it myself is, 
you know, whatever scripture is putting in front of me, the one thing that I absolutely know is that I can always trust God. I can always trust God. I can always trust him. And I can always trust his character. You know, there may be things that are too deep for me, too hard for me, too heavy for me, a bit beyond me. You know, that's okay. Because the one thing that I do know is I can always trust him. I can always trust his character. And that's ultimately where each one of us lives. You know, one of my favorite passages is the end of John chapter 6, where Jesus has just taught an incredibly controversial and, and somewhat grotesque teaching about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And it says many of his disciples left him, not just, you know, casual followers. It says many of his disciples left him. And it says he turned and looked at the 12 and he said, are you going to leave me as well? And Peter said, you know, Lord, you have the words of life. Where else would we go? And I, I love, I love that declaration because Peter didn't say, you know, Lord, I'm tracking with you 100%. <laughs> you know, Jesus didn't say, or, or Peter didn't say to Jesus, yeah, I totally get what you're saying. Uh, Peter was completely, completely overwhelmed and completely at a loss. But he knew the Messiah was standing in front of him. And he knew that whatever Jesus taught, whether he understood it or not, whether he got it or not, he knew he was not going to leave Jesus. He knew it. And so, I mean, for me, that's, that's one of the things that I constantly go back to, particularly when wrestling with something that's heavy or with something that's challenging. You know, we can trust the character of God. We can. You know, it's like Job. Job is another one of my favorite interactions between a human and God. Because Job is questioning God and God is being unfair and how can God be doing this to me? And then God just comes down. And God just says, you know, Job, are you there way up in the high mountains when the mountain goats give birth? You know, can you tame Leviathan? Can you tame Behemoth? And Job all of a sudden is like, yeah, God, you're, you're infinitely bigger than me. And, you know, what is Job's response? He said, I opened my mouth once, but now I'm going to shut up because, because the king of creation has spoken. And so, you know, I think where all of us are and where we're heading is just getting more and more to that place where we trust him. He's God and there is no other. You know, let, let, let all the world be called a liar. God alone is true. Let the world question him, deny him, laugh at him, mock him, whatever else the world is going to do, we will tenaciously hold on to him because he's God. Who else is there? You know, this is even what, 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 what Paul gets at in Romans, you know, 9, where he's talking about predestination, and he realizes that a lot of people are going to have a lot of problem with the doctrine of predestination. And ultimately, he says, you know, who are you to tell God what he can and cannot do? I mean, that, that really is, you know, Paul's argument. You know, okay, you may have a problem with this, and, and he doesn't deny that. But at the end of the day, he says, look, are you going to tell God who he can be? Are you going to tell God what he can and cannot do? That's, that's rebellious humanity. That's rebellious humanity. And that's like what my wife said, that's what's dying in us. That's what's dying in us. And what God is doing is he is transforming us. And he's conforming us not to this world, but he's conforming us to the image of his son. 
you know, the son went to the cross because he completely trusted the father. He went to the cross because he completely trusted the father. That's the image. That's the image that we're being conformed to. So anyways, yeah, thank you for these comments. And I feel like we have a couple others. Libby, we'll let Libby go first, and then we have another one on Zoom. But yeah, Libby, please. Yeah, just a, just a couple of thoughts. Um, one is, and as I think the comments have kind of helped me make this go a little bit deeper into my mind and heart. But just uh, first things like, wow, like Jesus really had to come. Uh, and like, I think for me, when I look at other people, even unbelievers, and I see they're happy and they're doing well. And if I'm not like soaring or super happy, I'm like, oh, like what? <laughs> but, uh, but this from a more eternal perspective, it's like, wow, like I, like I, I don't fully understand. And like, they, like they, they don't fully understand, but just like, wow, like Jesus had to come and like, he's, there, there is no other, um, the other, the other thought I had was just about forgiveness and how there's a song that I was introduced to a couple months ago, and it's called Greater Still, and the chorus goes, my sin was deep, your grace was deeper, my shame was wide, your arms were wider, um, my guilt was great, your love was greater still. Mm. Um, and just the idea of like forgiveness running like as deep as sin runs, forgiveness runs deeper. Mm. Um, and so... Anyway, those are just two, two cents. Yeah, amen. Jesus had to come. I like I like that way of putting it. He did, he did, and and again, you know, I, I, what what we're finding is, you know, when we determine whatever the doctrine is, when we determine to really, really do everything we can to hold on to any doctrine that Scripture teaches, we see that it just connects with every other. You know, we, we've seen how eternal punishment connects with grace, you know, and the necessity of the cross. You know, this is, this is where the discussion, but the discussion started from eternal punishment. So, you know, what we want to do is do everything we can to hold on to every piece of truth that the word of God gives us, because obviously it is all connected in the person and the character of God. Mm -hmm. so. But yeah, Aaron, did we have someone on Zoom? Oh. Ted, did you still want to share something? Uh, I think everything I was going to share has already been shared more eloquently by other people. Thanks, anyway. Are you sure? You're pretty eloquent, Ted. You're sure? Well, I was going to, I was going to mention, um, you, you had emphasized the, the character of God and his righteousness and justice, that that's the, the song of Moses in Revelation chapter 15. Mm. Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways. Who will not fear and 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 for you alone are, are holy? Just the fact that God's ways are righteous and true. And if I find an emotion within myself that recoils at something in God's word and says, well, that doesn't really seem fair. You know, that doesn't seem just to me. Uh, yeah. I'm not in the place of judging God. God's word is in the place of judging me and um, his ways are righteous and true. That's what Moses and the Lamb sing in Revelation chapter 15. And when, I, when I'm tempted to say, well, God's judgments are, are very harsh and, you know, will he really punish people eternally? 
you know, the, another fundamental truth in scripture has to be juxtaposed. And that's the basic message of John 3.16. You know, I can say to somebody and even to myself when it seems like God's uh, un unduly harsh, you know, God loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You know, Jesus is aware of the fact that God's judgment will cause people to perish. And the amazing salvation that the Lord offers to us is that God loved us so much that he gave his only begotten, begotten son to whoever believes in him would not suffer that fate, but would have the everlasting life. Not everlasting death, not the lake of fire, but everlasting life. That's why Jesus came. So I'm just reinforcing what others have said. Thanks. No, thank you, Ted. You always have a an excellent way of putting things in. And yeah, that's pretty eloquent, Ted. I, I, I appreciate the comment, definitely. So, and I appreciate all of the comments. And again, one of the things that I think I appreciate that's happening tonight is that, you know, we're wrestling through something that for a lot of us is not necessarily the easiest thing, but, but, but there's always value in that. There's always value in wrestling through something with the Lord, with the people of God, with his word. So yeah, Jeff, you have a comment or a question? I do, brother. Thank you for your teaching. Yeah. yeah. Oh, sure. Sure. The question, the question I have is, and maybe it's a thought first, and maybe you could personalize it. Um, what was going through my mind was for myself to guard my heart from being presumptuous about where any one person ended up in terms of their destiny. Mm. And I'm wondering from your experience, what you found when you've witnessed, you've not seen evidence that the person has accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior, yet you were not present at the end of their days or their last day or their last moments. And, and how that sort of ties in practically to talking with people, even evangelistic. Yeah, no, I appreciate you bringing that up, Jeff. You know, one, one of the passages of scripture that I go to regularly when this type of question is raised is the teaching of Jesus that says, you know, we judge a tree by its fruit. But to me, what, what Jesus is saying there is we can genuinely evaluate people by the fruit that they are bearing or the fruit that they are not bearing. So again, I think it is you know, to a certain extent, right to evaluate where people are, you know, ourselves included. But I think also, you know, the scriptures clearly teach that, you know, we will never be the perfect judge of any other human. So, for example, you know, Jesus talks about wolves and sheep's clothing. Well, you know, those wolves, they, they look like sheep. Now, to the discerning Christian, ultimately, there are going to be some bad fruit that's coming from that. And the Lord's going to give us that wisdom and discernment. But, you know, for us to, like you say, use the word presumption and say we absolutely know the eternal fate of every, anyone else. Yeah, I, I don't think we can. I think, you know, I think it's right for us to find great comfort when a believer dies. I think that's right because scripture actually encourages us to do that. You know, when Paul is writing the Thessalonians, you know, he's, he's clearly saying that the Thessalonian Christians who were uncertain about the fate of their sisters and brothers who had died, he wanted to assure their hearts. So when there is someone that gave every evidence of being a genuine believer, gave every evidence of someone who loved Jesus Christ, you know, I think in that sense, I don't think it's presumption. I think in that sense, it really is 
the real anchor of, of comfort that Scripture gives us, that if someone had given their life to Jesus Christ, we can take great comfort in knowing that they are in a place of the presence of the Lord. In terms of the flip side, you know, absolutely saying that someone is dead and suffering in hell. Yeah, I, I think generally we just kind of avoid saying that. And I think probably there, there, there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. Um, because I think there can be a bit of, you know, judgment beyond what we as humans can make. The only thing I would say is that you know, we don't want to shy away from that because we're shying away from this. And again, that's such a fine, you know, parsing of the heart, you know, that, that, that would be hard to say. But I would say sometimes, you know, because of what we're saying tonight, that for many of this, this is such a really hard truth. We don't ever want to even think that someone we knew might be experiencing that. And again, Jeff, I don't think, I don't think there's any value in saying, oh yeah, I know that person died an unbeliever, so I know that person went to hell and is suffering there right now, because that's not really a, an attitude that I see scripture adopting from our perspective. I mean, once we have that eternal perspective, Isaiah 66, 24, Revelation 14, 11, yeah, then we ultimately are in line with the justice and the holiness of God. But I think the caution that you're giving, generally speaking, is probably a good one. As long as it doesn't soften our zeal to share the gospel with folks as long as they're still alive. Saying, well, okay, you know, ultimately God will, you know, reveal himself to them at the last moment. I don't have to worry about it. But yeah, I, I don't think, I can't think of a place in scripture where, you know, the Lord is inviting us as believers to condemn people to a judgment that only God himself can make, if that, if that kind of helps to answer that. But I would say the comfort that we receive in knowing that a believer died and went to be with the Lord, that is something we hold on to. That is a judgment we make. So for example, you know, any of our sisters and brothers that were part of this community that are no longer living, we take great comfort in knowing that they are with the Lord. Absolutely. So, but no, thank you for bringing that up because again, you know, pride and presumption and arrogance, well, I certainly know it creeps into my heart all the time. We certainly want to avoid that as much as possible. So, but anything else about this before uh, we wind this down? So I, I really appreciate all of the comments and all of the questions. And again, to me, this is really the, the power and the beauty of, of us doing something like this as we do it corporately. So we hear from each other, we think of different scriptures and share them, we have questions together, you know, some of us are sharing something that, you know, other, a person says, yeah, yeah, I'm feeling the same way. So I really appreciate that. And there is so much power in, in getting on your own and reading the word on your own, and we need to be doing that regularly. But there's so much power in reading the word of God together. You know, there's so much power in studying the word of God together. You know, what we're doing here you know, in Zoom and in person. So, so thank you. This is, this is one of the things that I, I just so much love about this is just the fellowship of believers, you know, sitting at the feet of Jesus together and listening to the Lord teach us together. What, what, what a blessing that is. What a gift that is. So, well, I see that we've got less than 10 minutes. And so I'm actually a little hesitant 
to launch into our final topic. You know, my wife was very concerned that next Wednesday is our anniversary. But I noticed that my wife was actually one of the ones that was really, you know, elongating our discussion tonight. So maybe 26 years, she's like, ah, I don't really want to go out to dinner with him that much anyways. So, but seriously, I, I, you know, we would only begin to scratch the surface. The, the final topic that we have, you know, you see the sheet if you're here in person. I don't know if you pulled it up for the folks on Zoom. But the final topic we have is the new heavens and the new earth. You know, this is the fate of the wicked, but something as glorious as this is awful in terms of, of, of suffering awaits us as believers. And it's, it's the note that scripture begins on and it's the note that scripture ends on. And so I don't want to rush through it. So we are definitely committed to finishing this study before our first outreach, but our first outreach is a week from Friday night. So what we will do is we will meet next Wednesday at seven o'clock. That's Wednesday, June the 14th, Flag Day. That's why it's such an important day. So we'll meet on Flag Day and we will simply tackle that final theme of the new heavens and the new earth. And then we will conclude our study on eschatology. We will completely pause any type of corporate Bible study for the summer because we really are emphasizing and wanting folks to be here every Friday that we're doing outreach. And then I'm not sure in September what we will do, whether we'll go back to Second Samuel, whether we'll pick up something different, that, that I'm not sure. But let's, let's just say we've got one more week. So June 14th, we'll be here at seven and we will discuss the glorious truth of the new heavens and the new earth. And there won't be any smoke of forest fires filling our lungs in the new heavens. No, in the new heavens and the new earth. Yeah, hopefully next week. <laughs> but definitely not in the new heavens and the new earth. So, but let's pray. Heavenly Father, as always, we do just want to thank you so much for giving us this time together tonight. And Lord, I want to thank you particularly for each person that made the effort to be here, whether it was in person uh, going outside in this, this nasty weather or folks on Zoom taking the time to, to jump in. And, and Father, I do. I, I just, I really want to thank you for the questions, for the comments, because I feel like, Lord, that really just helps us to, to know your heart a little better because there's not any one of us who sees you perfectly on our own. And each one of us can greatly benefit from a sister and a brother in Christ sharing a bit of how they have experienced you or what's rising up in their heart or a passage of scripture that came to mind. And so God, I just, I thank you so much for the discussion that we've had tonight, for the comments, for the questions, and, and Lord, just for the honesty uh, that each person has, has shared. And Father, I do want to thank you. I want to thank you that you are perfect and you are holy and perfect in everything you do. And eternal punishment is holy and perfect because you cannot be unjust. You cannot be unrighteous. And so God, help us always to come to you ready to accept you as you are and to allow your spirit to change us in all the ways that we need to be changed. 
And Father, I, I finally just pray for the two things that we mentioned earlier. I pray that as we consider internal punishment, I pray first and foremost that it would just inspire in us a greater zeal for worship and thanksgiving. Thank you, Lord, that you saved us from hell. Thank you. Thank you. That's where we were going. And we're not going there anymore. Thank you, Lord. And finally, Father, I pray as well that the truth of eternal punishment would motivate us to share with the unbelieving world. I pray, Lord God, that that would be greater than our fear or our laziness or our distractedness or anything else that might keep us from telling people about Jesus. You have rescued us. And as Ted emphasized, you are willing and wanting to rescue others. And so each one of us, may we make ourselves available to be used by you, to be used by you, to share the hope of rescue for those who have not yet met you. But again, Lord, we just thank you so much for our time together tonight. I just pray for safety for all of us who are here and pray that you would bless the rest of our evening. And we lift all this up to you, Jesus, in your name alone. Amen. Amen. Well, once again, thank you all for being here. It's always great to be together. It's an incredible blessing for me. And looking forward to next Wednesday and talking about the new heavens and the new earth. But everyone have a good night.